0: Good morning, everybody, and uh, so excited to have you here at the Medina East Campus. Like Kevin mentioned, too, I just want to say, too, we are so excited and proud of Isaac and Camden getting baptized here today, so excited to see that uh, take place. And uh, I do just want to say that if you are a guest, if you're just joining us for the first time, or if you're catching us on live stream for the first time uh, right now on the internet, uh, we just want to say welcome. We're so glad that you're able to be with us. But if you are new, you're actually catching us. We're actually in the third part of a six-week series that we've been calling powerless to change, question mark, life through the spirit. I do want to clear something up real quick. A lot of times when people watch that video or when they see the graphic, I've got this question over the past few weeks. People have said, is that you in that graphic? Is that you in the?" And so I just want to clear it up. That's not me. Okay, I don't know who it is, but he's real attractive, whoever it is. (laughs) So... uh, We'll just say that, but, uh, but no, so we're in this series called Powerless to Change, and, um, and if you are just joining us, um, we have been in this conversation for the past few weeks, and so let me just kind of recap for you as best as I can, and as quickly as I can, what it is that we've been, we've been talking about, and so we actually made this statement in this series. Uh, the statement we said is this. We said that the real change that God really desires is really possible, and so in this series, we, we've been saying this, we've been saying that the real change, the real transformation that God desires to see in our lives, in your life, in my life, we said that's actually a real possibility. It is, it is, very, it is really possible for us to change, for us to be transformed. And the reason that we, we said that this is such an important statement is because uh, I believe that many, many, many of us In fact, even many of us who follow Jesus, which I I know, by the way, not everyone who's here today maybe is a follower of Jesus, or if you're watching online, you might not be a follower of Jesus. Some of you are still investigating Christianity and trying to figure out all of your faith journey. And by the way, if that's you, I just want to say how absolutely privileged we feel that you would let us be part of of that investigation. what we said is this, is we said that for many, many, many of us, and even for those of us who follow Jesus, that sometimes we can become so frustrated and exhausted with our so many seemingly failed attempts to change that we start to wonder if this is even really a possibility. Is this even possible? Is this even true? We start to wonder, is real transformation possible? And so, for example, maybe for some of us, we think of the many, many attempts to try to control damaging or sinful behaviors in our life. And so maybe it's something like gossip, or it's an unhealthy sexual uh, habit that exists in our life, or maybe it's an outburst of anger, and we think about how many times we have tried to gain control over that issue, and yet it seems like no matter how hard we try, we find ourselves back uh, where we started. Or maybe for some of us, uh, we might think of the attempts that we've made in our life to try to change patterns that negatively affect our relationships. And so maybe we can see that there's some unhealthy patterns and maybe we have inclinations towards things like unforgiveness or things like bitterness or things like jealousy or things like resentment. And as much as we try to overcome those things and as much as we see that those things are patterns that have hurt our relationships in the past, we cannot seem to overcome them and it seems like we just revert back to them. Or maybe for some of us what we think of is we think of the thousands of stop-start attempts to follow Jesus and to go all out for God. And we think about how we're like, well, this time I'm really gonna do it. I'm really gonna go for it, and I'm gonna be committed to it, and I'm gonna get serious about following God. And it seems like every attempt to do that, we end up back kind of where we, where we started. And I think what happens is, for a lot of us, we actually find ourselves wondering if this is real, if the real change that God really desires is really possible. And we find ourselves asking the question, am I powerless to change? Am I powerless to change? Am I just destined to live a life of frustration and exhaustion as it relates to the Christian life. Now, of course, in the series, what we're saying is that, uh, that no, we actually believe that the real change that God really desires is really possible. But here's the mistake that we make, and here's what we've been talking about. We said the mistake is that oftentimes when we seek the transformation that God desires, that we actually look to the wrong source. We said a lot of times we look to ourselves. We look to our own energy and our own effort to produce that change. And so what is the real change? What is the power to change in the Christian life? And this is what we've been saying in this series. You ready for it? You ready for it? The power is the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's why our tagline is life through the Spirit. In fact, what we've been looking at in this series, we've been looking at one chapter of the Bible specifically. We've been journeying through Romans chapter 8. In fact, I want to invite you right now, if you've got your Bible, why don't you go ahead and open it up with me as we kind of continue in this series. Romans 8 is where we're going to go. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, that's not a problem. Uh, page 916 is where you're going to find Romans 8, and the Bible's underneath the chairs. And let me just say this too, if you don't own a Bible, we would so love for you to have one. So we just think it's so important that you have a copy of God's word, that you can have that. You can take it home with you and make it a gift from us to you. All right. So Romans 8, hopefully you got that there in front of you. I'll also put the verses up here on the screen here in just a moment. But here's what we discovered over the past couple of weeks. We said, as you look at Romans 8, it is very clear. It becomes very apparent. But the main theme and the main character in Romans chapter 8 is the Holy Spirit, Uh, Romans chapter eight, over 21 times, the Bible is going to talk about the Holy Spirit and his role in our transformation. But here is the issue, and here is why we're doing this series. It's because for a lot of us, I mean, I think if we're just being honest, for a lot of us, the whole topic of the Holy Spirit and interacting with the Holy Spirit is one that can seem really bizarre, it's one that maybe is often very confused, uh, it's a topic that is uh, sometimes very abused, depending on the background that you came from, and quite honestly, most often is just totally ignored, the, the whole conversation about how we interact with the Holy Spirit. And so because this is one of those topics that is often you know, ignored and abused and misunderstood, we said that we actually just wanna to look to the Bible to really get some clarity on this question, and that's this, how are we to properly and, and in a healthy way, how are we to understand the Holy Spirit how are we relate to and interact with the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're really thinking about is is we're asking the question, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? How are we to understand him? And then we're asking the question, and how do we cultivate a relationship with the Holy Spirit? What does it actually look like for us to interact with the Holy Spirit in a healthy way? So that's what we've been doing as we've been going through uh, Romans chapter eight. Now last week... We actually started looking at the first verses in Romans 8. And if you missed that, I'd encourage you to go back. But if I could just summarize what we said last week, here's what we said last week. We said that without the Holy Spirit, Romans 8 is going to tell us, without the Holy Spirit, listen, we have no chance and we have no choice to see the change that God desires in our life. I'm going to say that again. Without the Holy Spirit, we have no chance and we have no choice, specifically against sin. That's what the Bible's going to tell us. But Romans is going to say that that's not true anymore. Because Romans 8 is going to tell us that because of Jesus Christ and because of what he's done through his death and his burial and his resurrection, that Jesus has now defeated sin and he has defeated death. And as a result of that, the same spirit who rose Jesus Christ from the dead is available to those who put their faith in him, and he is now the one who enlivens and empowers the Christian life. So the Bible's gonna tell us. So this is why the Bible is going to tell us that the process of transformation that God desires is not one that is self-generated. It's not self-generated. It is spirit-generated. That's why the Bible's gonna say stuff like this in Galatians 5. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your life. Then you won't be doing what the sinful nature craves. Now, do you notice in this verse... What is the pathway to true change and transformation? It is found in allowing the Holy Spirit to guide your life. So what the Bible's gonna say. So other verses are gonna say that now, for those of us who follow Jesus, the way to transformation is that we need to be led by the Spirit, that we need to walk with the Spirit, that we need to keep in step with the Spirit, that we need to depend on the Spirit, that we need to let the Holy Spirit guide our lives. And so the process of transformation is now found in a right interaction and relationship with the Holy Spirit. In fact, right here in Romans, I want you just to glance down with me. If you look at verse four, so we'll pick it up here in verse four. At the end of verse four, he says this. He says that we, we do not live according to the flesh, but we live according to the Spirit. And so now we are to live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, so here's the question. What does that mean? And then practically speaking, how do we even do that? If the Bible says that we need to let the Holy Spirit guide our life, and we need to walk by the Spirit, and we need to live by, what does that even mean? And practically speaking, how do, we actually, how do we actually do that? Well, let me just say that I think that part of understanding what the Bible says here and what it's going to go on to say is actually in part understanding a very important word that's used here, and it's this word, Live says, do not live according to the flesh, but live according to the Spirit. Now, this is a really, really fascinating word and a very important word, I think, as it relates to knowing how to interact with the Holy Spirit. So some of you have different translations. Maybe you have your own Bible with you. And you might notice, if you have a different translation, that in different translations, this word is translated very differently. And so, for example, in the NIV, uh, which is the, the, the translation we're looking at right now, the New International Version, this word is live, in other translations, like the English Standard Version and the, New, and the King James Version and the, and the uh, New American Standard, it is walk, so it says walk by the Spirit. And then in the New Living Translation, it says follow. And I don't know if you can, if you can see this, but it's very clear that whatever's going on with this word, apparently it's one that's very difficult to translate into the English language. In fact, if I could just give you a quick, a quick uh, kind of a, a Bible reading tip, Whenever you're reading the Bible and you have two translations in English translations and you see that they translate a word very differently, that's always an indication that there's something happening in the original language that's very hard to translate into English. Like I don't know about you, I can't think of one English word that properly encapsulates all three of these ideas. I can't think of one. And here's why, and this is why I think this is so important. It's because the word that's used in the Greek is a really unique word, and we do not, we do not have an English equivalent for it. And here's what it is. So I'm going to teach you a little bit of Greek. All right, just bear with me here for a second because I think this is important. So the word is actually this word right here. It's parapateo, parapateo. And I always thought it sounded like pair of potatoes. That's what it sounds like <laughs> to me. So I want you to turn to the person next to you. Go ahead and give it a shot. Say parapateo. Go ahead and try it out in Greek. Okay, it's parapateo, and... Why is this a unique word? Well, here's why it's unique. Because it's actually, a, it's actually two Greek words that are put together, it's almost like a compound word. And here's what it is, it comes from these two words. One is pateo, which means walk, so we all understand that, right? Walking is, it communicates the idea of a journey, um, it communicates the idea of a step-by-step, moment-by-moment interactive relationship with another, that's being, that is is definitely part of what it means to interact with the Holy Spirit. But there's another word, and it's a really interesting one. It's this word peri, and it means comprehensively around. That's what it means. And so if you've ever heard the word perimeter, that's actually where the same root comes from. It's the same idea of being comprehensively around. So at first glance, this is a little confusing. So you might be like, well, what is this telling us then about the way we're supposed to interact with the Holy Spirit? Are we supposed to?" walk circles around the Holy Spirit. Is that what the the Bible is saying here? And here's what I think think is being communicated. And you guys, I think this is so helpful for us to understand what it means to have a right relationship with the Holy Spirit. In one sense, yes. It means that interacting with the Holy Spirit is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day journey and interaction that's relational. I think that's true. But what I want you to see is that it's more than that. It's more than that. And so, for example, if you and I decided we were gonna go out for a walk today, you know, if we we're just like, hey, let's go for a walk, that would that would mean a couple things. It would mean that we probably have a friendship or a relationship of some kind. And it would mean that we are going on a mutually agreed upon we are going to a mutually agreed upon place, and we are going at a mutually agreed upon pace. That's what it would mean. And here's the mistake, is sometimes I think we can believe that walking with the Spirit means that I am inviting the Holy Spirit into my life, and I'm walking with the Spirit, but I'm still doing my plan and my agenda, and I'm still focusing on my goals, and I'm still focusing on my priorities, and the Holy Spirit is gonna walk with me as I go through those things. But this is where the second word is so important, because this word communicates the idea of being comprehensively around or centered on something. And so the idea is this, is that the Holy Spirit is not just walking with me, the Holy Spirit is the one who is also leading me and guiding me, that my plans and my priorities and my loyalties and my affections are ultimately centered around him and his agenda. That's the idea. So I think the reason this is so important is because I think this can sometimes confront a misunderstanding that can happen as it relates to the way we understand the Holy Spirit. You know, the Bible, one of the words the Bible uses to talk about the Holy Spirit, I don't know if you guys have ever heard this, sometimes the Bible will call the Holy Spirit the comforter or the helper. We'll call him the helper. In fact, that's what Jesus called the Holy Spirit. He called him the helper. And that's true, by the way. The Holy Spirit is the helper. But I think that that word can unfortunately maybe increase confusion for us, and here's why. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word helper, I don't know, what comes to your mind when you think of helper? I know for me, what comes to my mind is I tend to think of a helper as the lesser of the two parties in a relationship. That's what I tend to think of. Uh, When I think of a helper, I think of the person who's there to assist and to support and to play the second chair in a relationship. So I think of like, I don't know, for whatever reason, the first thing that comes to my mind is I think of Santa's little helper. You know, Santa's little helper. And the idea is Santa's the big guy, the big show. He's the guy who's got the agenda and the plan, and he's got some little helpers who are there. Or I think of my kids. Sometimes I'll ask my kids to help me with stuff, and I'll say, oh, your dad's a little helper. And usually what that means is that they're going to run around and you know swing a hammer and pound it against the ground, and that's going to be help or whatever. And it means that I'm the one that has the agenda, and maybe they're going to help me out a little bit. Or you know what else comes to my mind when I think of helper? I think of like kind of, um, of like... Uh, a, a, uh, like a sidekick character. That's what I think of. Like, uh, what comes to my mind, the picture is, is I think of Batman and Robin. And, you know, it's interesting, in Batman and Robin, uh, if you guys have ever seen any of the movies or any of the shows or any of that kind of stuff, who is the main character in all of those movies and all those shows? Who is the primary character in Batman and Robin? It's Batman. It's Batman. The movies are called Batman. The show is called Batman. All the toys in the gadgets and the gadgets are called bat stuff, right? It's the Batmobile, and it's the Batcave, and they put up the bat signal. And then you got Robin, and who is Robin? Well, Robin's like the sidekick. He's the helper. He plays a support role, and he'll help out Batman, but the whole thing is about Batman. It's about Batman's agenda. It's about Batman's priorities. It's about Batman's, you know, kind of that, that whole thing. Well, here's the problem. I think that sometimes when we hear that the Holy Spirit is the helper, we can inadvertently think that the Holy Spirit is Robin, And we're Batman, like we we got our life and we got our thing and we're doing our stuff and the Holy Spirit, we're gonna ask him to bless the things that we're doing. And so I just wanna be really, really, really clear. All right, here's the thing. The Holy Spirit is not Robin. He's not Robin, all right? You're Robin. You're Robin. You and I are Robin. When the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the helper, when it uses that word, what the word means is it means this. The Holy Spirit is the one who helps us follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us know the will and obey the will of God. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. And so we are Robin in this, in this equation. And so in one sense, to walk with the Spirit, yes, it means a day-by-day interactive relationship, moment-by-moment with the Holy Spirit. But in another sense, it means that my life, my desires, my priorities are bending to his desires and to what he wants. He is taking the lead in my life. So that begs the question then, all right, so practically speaking then, what does it look like then to live or walk by the Holy Spirit? This is where the next part of this passage I think is going to be really clear for us, going to help us out a lot. So here's what it says in verse five it says, Those who live, those who live, so there it is again, those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on what the flesh desires. But those who live according to the Spirit, have their mindset on what the spirit desires. So the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind that's governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to his law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. And I understand That when we read those verses, those sound very complicated and confusing. And I get that. And the reason is because they are very dense. They are very thick. They are full of a lot of content. But what I want you to notice in the midst of all that complexity is I want you to notice that there's a repeated emphasis on a particular word that's very important. And do you notice what it is? It's the word mind. Notice the incredible emphasis that's put in these verses on the mind it talks about the mindset on the flesh and the mindset on the spirit. It talks about a mind that's governed by the flesh and a mind that's governed by the spirit. Now, what's this showing us? I think here's what it's showing us. It's showing us that the starting place, the beginning point of walking with the spirit always starts in our mind. It always begins in our mind. In other words, I'll put it this way. I think what we discover is that the true battleground as it relates to spiritual matters is your mind, it's your mind. And what, the, what this passage is telling us is that your mind is not a neutral ground, it is not. It's either gonna be governed by one of two authorities. It's either going to be governed by the spirit or it's going to be governed or set on the flesh. That's what he's talking about. Now some of you might be saying, what does that even mean? A mind governed by the flesh and a mind governed by the, by the spirit. And practically speaking, what does that even mean? And so let me tell you what I want to do for the rest of our, our time and, and just for time's sake because I know I spent a lot of time setting that up. I just want to give you two big differences, two big differences between a mind that is governed by the flesh and a mind that is governed by the spirit. Now in weeks to come, we're going to see way more than that. But for time's sake, I just want to show you two, two that I think are right in this passage. So here's the first one. I think this I believe that the mind that's governed by the flesh, here's a key difference, the mind that's focused on the flesh is focused on self. Self. And the mind that's that's governed by the spirit is focused on Jesus. It's focused on Jesus. So you're like, okay, well what do you mean by that? Well, let, let me show you what I'm, what I'm kind of talking about here. So I think when we hear flesh, that word, that's a really weird word. And I don't know about you, but when I think of flesh, I tend to think of like my literal you know, skin and those kind of things. When the Bible talks about flesh, it actually means much more than that. And so the Greek word for flesh is the word sarks. It's actually kind of a fun word to say. So you want to try it out? Say sarx, say sarks. Sarks. And so what is sarx? Well, what Sarx is talking about is it's talking about the desires and the dictates of our self-centered nature. That's what it's talking about. And so our flesh, in many ways, is it's our fleshly, almost animalistic, instinctual desires that we have inside of us. The Bible's gonna call that the flesh. I heard one Bible teacher say it this way. I thought this was helpful. They said, if you wanna know what the flesh is, they said, all you have to do is take the word flesh, drop the H, and then put it backwards. And that's what it is. Flesh is just self. It is a mind that is governed by and is preoccupied with self. That's what the flesh is. What is a mind governed by the flesh? It's a mind that's focused on self. Here's what it is. It's the me monster. That's what it is. It's me, 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 I, I, I. It's what I want, it's my desires, it's my plans, my goals, my impulses, my security, my stuff, my investments, what I want to do today, my thing, my feelings, my time, my rights, me, my, me first, that, that's, that's what the flesh is. The flesh is all about, it's all centered on me. And the interesting thing is this fleshly impulse, this fleshly mindset can show up in a multitude of ways. It really can. Uh, one of the ways that this can show up is through uh, just prideful arrogance. And it's this, it's I'm the best, I'm the most important, my needs are the, are the most important, me first. It can show up that way. Another way it can show up though, maybe a little bit more unsuspecting, is sometimes it can show up in self-effacing insecurity. I'm the worst. I deserve nothing. I'm a terrible person. I don't deserve anything. And that, that sounds like prideful arrogance and insecurity. They sound like two very, very different mindsets, but they actually have one thing in common. They have one common denominator. They are both, they, they are both preoccupied with self preoccupied with me and how I feel and who I am. I'll tell you what's interesting is this fleshly mindset can actually show up in very subtle ways. Sometimes it shows up in Christianity. It shows up in religion. And the way, so So Christianity becomes about what I do or what I don't do or how good I am at doing it or how much I'm terrible at doing it. And it becomes all of that. But what is the, listen, what is the Holy Spirit preoccupied with? The flesh is preoccupied with self. What is the Holy Spirit preoccupied with? The Bible's gonna show us that the Holy Spirit's preoccupied with Jesus. The Holy Spirit, and let me, let me clarify, this isn't to say that the, that the Holy Spirit doesn't care about you, and that if you even have one selfish thought, or if you think about yourself, like if you're like, I'm hungry, oh, I'm thinking about myself, oh, I'm a terrible person, that's not, that's not it. Not that, not that. Turn to someone next to you and say, not that. It's not that. But what is it? Here's what it is. The Holy Spirit is always focused on Jesus. He's always trying to draw our mind on attention to Jesus, to what Jesus has done, not to what we have done, to, what Jesus, to our position that is now available to us in Jesus. In fact, can I just give you, I'm gonna show you a crazy example of this. In Romans 8, Uh, and I'm just gonna show you some verses, and they're all just right out of Rome, and I'm just looking at one chapter, just Romans eight. Let me just show you a few examples of what we see in Romans eight. So you see the Holy Spirit, but what else do you see? What is the Holy Spirit drawing our attention to? How about this, verse one? Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see that? There's no condemnation, not because of anything that you did, but because of Jesus, because of Jesus. He's shining the lights on, how about this one? For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. Look at this. God did, not you. You didn't do it. God did it. And how did he do it? He sent his own son. He sent his own son. Again, Jesus. It's about Jesus. But if, look at this, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life. Why does the spirit give life? Because of you? Because of Christ. Because of Jesus. You You see what he's doing? He's shining the lights on Christ. Show you more. Verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works, not you. God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29 For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of who? Of his son. Once again, it's it's Jesus. What then shall we say in response to things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son. It's on Jesus. How much will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? (laughs) Verse 34, who then is the one who condemns no one? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is interceding for us. That's what the Bible's gonna say. It's about what Jesus is doing, and all these things are more than conquerors. Why, because of what you did? No, because of Jesus and what he has done. Verse 38, I'm convinced that there's nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love that is found in Christ Jesus. And listen, I'm just telling you, I'm just giving you a sampling, and this is only in Romans 8. What is the Spirit doing? Here's what the Spirit does. He is always testifying and he is always reminding us of what Jesus Christ has done. He's always trying to draw us back to that place so that we can focus on him. This is actually what Jesus says. Let let me show you what Jesus says about the spirit. This is in John 16. It says, but when he, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the truth, and he won't speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears, and he'll tell you what's yet to come. Now look at this. Jesus says about the Holy Spirit, he'll glorify me. It's going to glorify me because it's from me that he's going to receive what he makes known to you. So the Bible says the Holy Spirit is just glorifying Jesus. He's just pointing to Jesus and what Jesus has done. Now, I understand that even as I'm saying that, for some of you, that sounds very vague. It sounds very vague. So let me see if I can just give you a personal example of how I believe the Holy Spirit works in this way. I could give you a lot, but I'll just give you one. And this is actually something that happened years ago in my life. And chances are good if you've been part of the Medina campus, you've probably heard me talk about this before. But years ago, years ago, years ago, I I was uh, in a circumstance where there was a person who who was somewhat close to me who I felt, just for the circumstances of what had happened, I felt very betrayed by I felt hurt and betrayed. I felt like I was, in the circumstance we were in, I was treated unfairly and I was treated unjustly. And just, I'll just be honest, I felt, I felt very betrayed. And um, now I understand that was from my vantage point. There's always two sides to a story and I'm an imperfect person, so I'm sure that I was contributing to this thing. But I'll just be honest with you, from my vantage point, I, I was like, I feel like, I'm, I feel like I'm being wronged and I feel like I'm, I'm being betrayed in this situation. And so I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, and so I knew as a follower of Christ that God does not want me to hold on to unforgiveness and bitterness. He does not want me to be a resentful person. And so I knew, I was like, I need to forgive this person. I need to forgive in this situation. And so I, I prayed about it, and I was like, I need to, I need to forgive them. And I would pray about it, but I'd just be honest, my mind just kept going back to just this place of bitterness. And I'd be like, I don't want to be bitter, but I just keep... And I kept thinking about what I, I would replay is I kept thinking about how right I was and how wrong they were and how, how, how unfair it was to me. And, and all I was thinking about was me, me, me. And I, I need to forgive them, but I'm so bitter and I can't, and as I was going through this whole thing, I remember this, this one day um, and this thought crossed my mind. This thought came across my mind. It was maybe one of the most <laughs> liberating thoughts I've ever had. And this was it. I thought about Jesus, which is not surprising, but I actually thought specifically about something that happened in John 13 in the Bible. And it just came to my mind, and I was just thinking about John 13. Now, if you're not familiar with it, there's actually an incredible passage in John 13 where it tells us about Jesus's final moments with his disciples before he went to the cross. So the night before Jesus faced his darkest hour and he went to the cross, the Bible says that the evening before, man, how awesome is Jesus? How awesome is he? The night before his darkest hour, what's he thinking about? He's thinking about his disciples, and he's thinking about them, and he decides he's going to set an example for them. And the Bible says that he goes around and he washes all of their feet. Now, if you're not familiar with foot washing, foot washing is actually a symbol. It symbolizes, uh, in part, it symbolizes the forgiveness of sins that as you walk throughout the day, your feet get dirty and you need to have your feet cleansed. It symbolizes that. But it also symbolizes servanthood. And here's what occurred to me. Here was the thought. Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Jesus was fully aware, 100% aware, that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that. He knew that Judas was about to betray him. Jesus was fully aware that Peter, one of his other disciples, was going to deny him three times. He knew that. He told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Jesus was fully aware that most of his disciples were going to totally abandon him in his darkest hour, in his, most, in his hour of deepest need. He knew that they were going to leave him. And yet, the Bible tells us that knowing that, he still got down and he washed their feet. He still did it. And this is what what came across my mind is I realized not only did Jesus wash the feet of the people who betrayed him, but here's what hit me. Jesus has done that for me, too. He's done that for me because in my actions and in my life, I have turned from Jesus. I have denied him in my attitudes, in my behaviors. And how does he treat me? And he serves me, and he loves me, and he forgives me. And I'll just be honest with you, when that thought occurred to me, I found a new power and a new capacity to love and forgive that I do not possess on my own. Now, I'm not saying that I didn't struggle after that, I still did, but there was a notable, definitive shift that happened in my mindset and that shift worked its way out into my behavior. Now listen, I believe, I am convinced that what happened in that moment was the Holy Spirit moving. I think that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit shines the lights bright on Jesus and draws our attention to him. And I love the way um, one commentary puts it called Romans for You. It says this, Paul, who, the guy who wrote the uh, book of Romans, Paul is saying that sin can only be cut off at the root if we expose ourselves constantly to the unimaginable love of christ for us that exposure will stimulate a wave of gratitude and a feeling of thankful indebtedness i think that's the point when we focus on what jesus has done for us it produces a gratitude and a capacity to love and serve that we do not possess within ourselves so the spirit is always shining the lights on jesus he will glorify jesus this is kind of a silly analogy but whenever i think of the holy spirit in his role do you know what i you know who i tend to think of I actually think of the, um, the people who work back here in the sound booth. They actually come to my mind. I don't know if you've ever been compared to the Holy Spirit, but you're the people. At, so a lot of you don't even know their name. They sit back in the dark recesses of our, of, our, of our campus. But back there, I think we have Alexis, and we have Bob, and we have Joseph. But, you know, on the weekend, I mean, just think about it. There's, what, what's happening on the weekend? Well, there's a lot of things that are happening but one of the things is, you know, Jordan or the musicians will get up here and they'll melt our faces off with the music in, in like in the most holy spirit kind of way. They'll do that. And then um, and then someone, myself or someone else will get up here and we'll preach. But do you notice, notice which ways the chairs are facing, right? Notice that there's lights. I have a microphone that amplifies. See, there we have it. There we have it. Touche. Touche, Holy Spirit. There you have it so. But you see what I'm saying? I'm like. They, they, they play a role in that they shine the lights on and they empower and they amplify the voice of those who are here. And I'm just saying, this is what the Holy Spirit is like. I heard J.I. Packer said this. I thought it was interesting. He said, The Holy Spirit is the shy one in the Trinity. And I kind of like that. Now, to be clear, the Holy Spirit is not timid. He's not timid, He's the one who gives boldness. But I think what the point is, is the Holy Spirit, He's always trying to shine the lights on and and get our attention onto Jesus and onto what he has done for us. So that's the first thing. Here's the second one I'm gonna talk about. The mind governed by the flesh is focused on the things of this world, but I believe that a mind that's governed by the spirit is focused on the things in his word. This is a very, very important distinction between a mind of the flesh and a mind that's governed by the spirit. I think one of the key aspects to setting your minds on the things of the spirit actually isn't something that we read in Romans chapter eight but I actually think it's something that is happening while we are reading Romans chapter eight. And what is that? That as we do, the Holy Spirit reveals himself. How do we know who the Holy Spirit is? Well, he reveals himself and he shows himself and he works through his word, that's what he does. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but the Bible's gonna say about the Bible itself, it's going to talk about how there is a very unique relationship between the Holy Spirit and the word of God. I'll just show you a couple passages Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is going to say that all scripture is God-breathed. And if you were with us last week, you'll probably remember that whenever you see the breath of God mentioned, that is always correlated to the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible's going to say in Second Peter 1, talking about the Bible, for prophecy never had its origins in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit or Ephesians chapter 6 it's going to say the sword it's going to call the word of God the sword of the spirit that is to say that the bible is like a tool in god's hands in the spirit's hands both to combat certain thoughts in our mind but also to convict and pierce our own hearts is how the bible is going to describe the word and so i believe that a mind that is governed by the spirit is one that is centered on his word on what his word says now you compare that you compare that to uh, a mind that is set on the flesh. And a mind that's set on the flesh, I believe, is focused on the things of this world. The things of this world, very different. Uh, it's actually interesting. When you read a Bible, it's going to make a correlation between the flesh and the world. And I'll just show you. In one place, it would be like in 1 John 2. It says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, now notice this, the lust of the flesh, and the the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And so when the Bible talks about the world, it's not just talking about the globe. What it's actually talking about is it's talking about the systems and the ethics and the values of the world. And so when we talk about this idea, when we say that the mind governed by the flesh is focused on the things of this world, what are we talking about? Well, I think here's the issue. I think the issue is this. Where does your mind dwell the most? What, what kind of things do you dwell on and do you linger on? Where do you intentionally and purposefully set your mind the most? Or maybe here's another way to ask it. When you wake up in the morning, what is the first place, where is the first place you direct your mind? Where is it? For some of you, the first thing you do when you wake up, you check ESPN, right? You just go right to see what happened and look at the scores. Maybe for some of you, the first place you go when you wake up is you go to your, your news network, whichever one that might be, but you click on that and that's, that's the first place you direct and you set your mind is right on that source. Maybe for some of you, the first place that you go is you go right to the stock market and you want to see how that's all going. Or maybe for you, the first place that you set your mind is on social media, and so you check Snapchat, you check Facebook, whatever it's going to be, you're going to check in on that and you're going to place indirect and set your mind on those places first. Here's a question. Where's the last place you set your mind before you go to bed? What's the last thing you do before you click off the light? What's the last thing you're looking at when you're on your phone? Now I want you to hear me very clearly. I am not anti-entertainment. I am not anti-news. I am not anti-social media, not by a long shot. I think that some of those things are actually very, very, very helpful. But here's the reality, and I think we have to know this. If we dwell in those places, and we dabble in the word of God, we cannot expect that there's going to be a real transformation that happens in our lives. We just can't. It's going to impact us. And a lot of times, those news sources, and those social media feeds, and the entertainment, what they do is they actually enforce a value system that oftentimes is entirely antithetical to that of the spirit. And it affects us, and it does. Psychologists point this out. I mean, I'll just show you a couple things I thought were interesting. There's a recent study that was done by the National Library of Medicine. They found that people showed an increase in both anxious and depressive moods after only 14 minutes of interacting with the news. And when I read that, I thought, well yeah, it's like only after two minutes for me, I feel that way. Um, these negative stories also provoke worries about your own personal life, even if they aren't directly related to the content of the news story. And so psychologists are saying, yeah, this this has an effect on you, it does. I think we all know about social media. Uh, A Lancet study published in 2018 found that people who check Facebook late at night were more likely to feel depressed and unhappy. And of course, a recent study published in the Journal of Social and Clinical Psychology found that the less time people spent on social media, the less symptoms of depressive and loneliness that they felt. Now, here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying we should just put our heads in the sand and just not pay attention to what's happening in the world. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is this. The Bible says that the mind that is governed by the flesh is death. And we talked about this last week. When the Bible says death, it's not always talking about just physical death. It's talking about spiritual death, relational death, emotional death. It's talking about a lack of vitality that God desires for your life. And I believe that all this is doing is it's just revealing to us what God's timeless word has been telling us all along. Where we put our mindset really, really, really matters. It really matters. And so the mind governed by the flesh is focused on the things of this world. The mind governed by the Spirit is focused on the things in his word. That's it. It's focused on the things of his word. I think it's absolutely impossible for you and I to walk by the Holy Spirit without a growing and increasing knowledge and love for the things of God's word. I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible. And that's why everything we do here is centered around the word of God. Our life groups are centered around the word of God. The studies are centered around the word of God. We want to memorize scripture. We want to do that. Why? why? Is it because we just want to be Bible nerds who just walk around going, we know a lot about the Bible. Is that why? No, it's because we want to know and follow and walk with the Holy Spirit. That's why. That's why. You know, I've, um, I've used this, this analogy. It's an imperfect analogy, but I've used this before. You know, it's really fascinating when you look at the words the Bible talks about to explain how the Holy Spirit guides and leads us. It's very fascinating. The activities of the Spirit, sometimes the Bible says that the Spirit groans. Sometimes the Bible says that the Spirit grieves. The Bible says sometimes the Spirit rejoices. Now, did you ever think about, and there's other words I could put up here, but do you ever think about these words? These are really interesting words to describe the activity of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. These are directing, course-correcting or cor- course-affirming emotions. So here's, here's, a, here's an, a, a kind of a way to think about it. Let's say that after service, you were like, hey, you want to get lunch? And I was like, sure. And we got in your car, and when we got in your car, you said, where do you want to go? I said, it's up to you. And then you said, well, you know what? Let's go to White Castle. Now, if you said, I don't even know if those things are still real. If you said that to me, though, do you know what I would do? You would hear a audible groan come out. I would go, oh, you'd say White Castle, and I'd go, oh. And then what would happen? You would probably, my guess is, that would probably affect your decision. You'd go, oh, oh, you don't want to go there? You'd be like, well, would you rather go to, like, I don't know, Chipotle or, you know, Five Guys? And then you would hear me go, you'd hear me go, ha right? I'd be, eh, I'd rejoice about that. I don't know why I would make, I probably wouldn't make noises like that, but you get what I'm saying. I think here's what the Bible says. When you become a follower, when you commit your life to Jesus Christ, there's this new reality that's at work within you, and all of a sudden you are going to feel these course-correcting or course-affirming emotions inside of you that weren't there before. And so you're gonna to go to a party that you used to go to beforehand, and the moment you walk in and you see what's going on and you feel the temptation around you, something inside of you is going, mm, mm-mm, mm-mm, not here. And what is that? That's the Holy Spirit. He's grieving inside of you. He's groaning inside of you. Or, or, or you do something that week and you're talking to someone and all of a sudden you just feel like you said something and you're like, oh that wasn't it. All of a sudden inside of you you're like, uh-uh, not that, don't say that. Or you do something or you say something and you, like maybe you go to life group or you get connected to something and all of a sudden you feel the spirit going, yeah, yes, that's good, that's good. Now, here, here's what I believe, okay, and this is what I'm convinced of. I was thinking about this, and I, I apologize because I'm gonna use another analogy using my children, and I'm sorry about that, but right now in my life, I don't really have a whole lot of hobbies, and my <laughs> only source of sermon illustrations is my kids. But I was thinking about this, my youngest son is, is, is three, his name is Louis Louie Lavigny. not a name. Sounds like he should be like holding a cigar and a glass of scotch or something, <laughs> but Louie. So Louis is three now, but when he was a baby, when he was a little baby, he did these things. He did all these things. He would groan, he'd grunt, he would grieve, he would cry, and he would rejoice. He would smile and he would laugh. But I remember this. I remember when he was a baby, my wife and I were often, oftentimes wondering why. Why is he doing that? So he would cry and we would be left guessing. And we'd have to troubleshoot the baby. Some of you guys are in this phase right now. So you'd be like, what's the matter? Is he hungry? And then you would try to feed the baby. And then, no, that's not it. And maybe he's dirty. Does he need to be changed? And you'd check on that. And no, that's not it. Something must be hurting him. And I remember having this thought with all of my kids, but I remember thinking, I wish he could just tell me. I wish he could just tell me. Well, now he's three, and he has words, and he can tell me. And so now when he whines, I can. and and sometimes I wish he didn't, (laughs) but sometimes when he whines, I can say, what's the matter? And he can say, he can say, I'm thirsty. And I can say, oh, that's very helpful. And then I can even specify, what would you like to drink? Would you like milk? Would you like water? And he can say, I want milk, and I can give him milk. Now listen, it's an imperfect analogy, but here's what I believe. I believe that when you begin to know and memorize and familiarize yourself with the word of God, what you are doing is you are giving the Holy Spirit words. You're giving him a voice. And now, not just will he grieve in you, but you will know why he is grieving in you. Now, when you said that thing, that you feel like the Holy Spirit is saying you shouldn't have said that, now he's gonna say, well, the reason is because of James 1.20. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. The Spirit of God loves the Word of God and will use the Word of God. The Word of God gives him a voice in our lives. You know, sometimes people will ask me, how does the Holy Spirit work and lead us? Does the Holy Spirit give us spontaneous promptings, unbidden thoughts like, You're driving on the road and all of a sudden you're like, turn left. Like, is that the spirit? No, I'm gonna turn left. You know, is that is that how the you're at the store and you're like, I need to get milk. Okay, okay, the spirit says get milk. Is that how the Holy Spirit works? Through these spontaneous, unbidden thoughts. And can I tell you what I believe about that? I think he does. I think the Holy Spirit will prompt you at certain times. Hey, pray for that person, call that person, encourage. For, ask, for, go go say you're sorry to that person. I think the Holy Spirit will do that, but can I tell you this? I don't think every unbidden thought is the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's White Castle from the night before, but listen, the Holy Spirit will never contradict the word of God ever, ever. He's always consistent with it, and so one of the greatest things we can do is get to know his word. I'm gonna draw the line there and ask the band to come up, and as they do, here's where we'll end for today. Um, Here's the bottom line. When we set our mind on the things of the Spirit, the Bible says that as we do that, he will produce fruit in our life. When we set our mind on the thing, we allow ourselves to be governed by the Holy Spirit. When we walk with the Holy Spirit, that is going to produce transformation in our life. I actually really love the way Galatians says it. Galatians 5 says the acts of the flesh are obvious. And then it goes on and it lists a bunch of very self-centered, impulsive things. But then it says something interesting. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I want you to notice something. The Bible is gonna say the acts of the flesh, but it doesn't say the acts of the Spirit. It says the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. I think that's very important because I want you to think about this with me for a minute. If you like, say you like apples, if I asked you how long would it take for you to grow an apple off of your arm, if I asked you that question, what would your answer be? The answer would be, that's a really dumb question. (laughs) And why is that? It's because an apple is not a work, it's a fruit. And so if you want the fruit, you have to go to the source of where the fruit is. You have to go to the tree. If I asked you the question, how long is it gonna take for you to love your enemy? How hard do you have to work to experience joy and peace in the trial that you're, whatever trial it is you're facing, How much effort are you gonna have to exert to grow that kind of joy and peace out of your life? If I was to ask you the question, how would you be able to, how long is it gonna take for you to have gentleness and self-control in the face of hostility? Here's the answer. That's a dumb question. Because those things aren't works. They're fruit. They're fruit. And so when we put our mind on the things of the Spirit, the Bible says that over time, gradually, transformation is going to occur, and it bears fruit in our lives. Let's pray. Would well, Jesus, thank you for your word to us and thank you for the spirit who gives life. And I pray that even right now in these moments, God, that you would reveal to our hearts and our minds, what are some, what are ways that even this week, practically, that we could take one small step, one small step to increase our focus on your word and decrease our focus on the world. Would you show that to us right now? Just show that to us. Lord, I ask you that maybe you would even in these moments, in our minds, Lord, would you, could you help us see what is something we could do purposefully this week to direct our attention to you, Jesus? And so as we worship and we sing and we celebrate with what you're doing in our lives and the lives of those who are getting baptized, I pray that we'd sing to you and we'd rely on you and we rejoice with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.